Steve Alcoholic. Uh, tonight's a speaker meeting, and it's nice to see a big group of people here on Friday night. Um, tonight's speaker is somebody who I saw occasionally at Bolden a few years ago, and I was like, what uh, she had to say. And then I uh, actually hadn't seen her in a while and saw her, I think, Tuesday and asked her if she might want to speak tonight. She said yes. And so uh, grateful that she said yes. And tonight's speaker is Kari. Thank you, Steve. Uh, my name is Kari. I'm an alcoholic. Um, and also an addict and many of other things. Um, I'm just really grateful to be asked to uh, get to speak tonight. It's been a while, and being of service really saves my life. Um, it actually says it here on the desire chip that it's service, unity, and recovery. And using those three things, I stay within that triangle of fellowship and get to stay sober today. Um, my sobriety date is 5-14-16, and for that I'm grateful. Um, it wasn't planned. My birthday was actually the day I wanted to get sober, which is April 25th, 1991. And I was born into a family that's high middle class. And um, my stepdad worked in the Secret Service, and my mom was a teacher, and that is important to know simply because later in life I would try to become a drug dealer, but I did all my drugs, so that wasn't too successful. But the fact was I was in the home of someone who worked for Homeland Security, and that was just, you know, very dangerous to do. Um, but going back to my childhood, um, there's a lot of things that I'm working on today. And in summary, I can definitely say that sex trauma, childhood trauma, just a bunch of different types of trauma. And um, that was one of the excuses I used to use and drink. Um, and also, I punished myself. And I would go into self-pity, depression. Um, and I remembered getting older. When I was in high school, I, I got made fun of a lot. So I wanted to be one of the cool kids eventually. So a nice way to do that was, well, I can get all the alcohol y'all guys want, you know? If you want drugs, I could get that too. I want to be your middleman. I want to be the person you were able to call on and be that provider, um, AKA higher power. Let me be your higher power and everything's going to be okay. Um, and so moving forward, I got into my first relationship, which looked like basically this individual was someone who was on the wrong side of the tracks. And that's my relationship history. 
is I was always seeking to get deeper and deeper into trouble. Um, and that was part of what I really wanted to do simply because I found myself wanting to be one of the bad girls. I wanted to be seen that way. So you'd basically say, well, um, She's a goody two-shoes, but she's cool as fuck. Um, so I wanted to fit in that way. Um, and so moving forward, I ended up in... Where was I? I moved around a lot. I've never lived anywhere more than five years of my life. Um, and I'm trying to get part to the part of sobriety because that's the main important part. Um, and so... Moving forward, I was in Florida, and I was about to graduate from high school, and um, I ended up not being able to because I didn't do well in school. Um, that's part of my history. Um, and so I got held back a year, and I really didn't care, really. It was just like, oh shit, I'm not going to graduate at high school. I'm going to continue to do drugs and alcohol. Um, and I moved to Virginia. And that's when things started getting the ball rolling a lot. Um, basically, I found a crowd of people who were able to get as fucked up as I was. And I okayed that in my life because I moved out of my parents' house and I moved into these other people's house. Um, they're called the Stewarts. Let's just call them the Stewarts. Um, so I lived with the Stewarts and they allowed me to drink and drug whenever I wanted to. Um, and that was something that I did on a daily basis. And once I realized I was in a pawn of their relationship, it was too late. I was basically supposed to testify for the wife and help her get a divorce and so she could get custody of her kids. And I was only 17 at that time. And that's also part of my history of growing up very fast, not really having much of a childhood, putting myself in adult situations without really realizing what I was doing in the first place. Um, and so before I knew it, I got framed. And part of what that looked like is I got drunk one night and he recorded me basically saying I'd do whatever it took to be able to live with them. And in the end, he coaxed me to suck his dick. And as a result, like, the wife was like, yo, you got to get the fuck out of here. And I wasn't able to really say anything about that. And um, it really was heartbreaking. I thought I was in a safe environment, but I wasn't, obviously. And so I moved back with my parents. And I did whatever I could to get out of there because it was like, all I did was continue to put myself more and more in the fire and adding gas to it. That's all I was doing in life. And so 
I went back to my parents, saved up some money, moved back to Florida, started going to college, and I was like a hostess at this job. And I was like drinking every day. Um, and I didn't see a problem with like collecting all these bottles and just having it like framed across the wall because I, I thought it looked cool, you know? And then my roommate came in the room one time like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, what the fuck is this shit? And I'm just like, isn't it cool? Like all these bottles. Um, and nothing was really mentioned about my drinking then, but he had weed. So I was like, okay, I'm going to continuously smoke weed with you. Um, and I just was fascinated with the crystals. If anybody knows about weed, like the way it crystallizes, like I was like, ooh, ah. Like, <laughs> and that plays an important role later on. But um, fast forwarding, I ended up leaving Florida, moving back to Virginia again. And once I moved to Virginia, I tried to like make amends with my family because I thought always thought like, well, it's my bad behavior. So let me try to like, not be as fucked up in life and go on the straight path because finally I was oh I forgot to add I did graduate high school late um and then I went to college um and I tried to start college and my family ended up moving to Texas but I stayed and part of this story in Virginia is I was casted i was living in a family friend's house my mom's friend's house and i was casted out because of my sexuality um i didn't tell anybody that i was lesbian i didn't think it was important um and so as a result once she found out she's like you gotta leave and the way she asked me to leave was she would threaten me she threatened me with a bat and she's like if i decided like kill you with this bat, beat you to death, and decided when the cops came not to tell them because I didn't think about it. What would you think about that? And that's the way people would speak to me before sobriety, that type of behavior. And I thought it was okay. And so I just ended up leaving, shoved that shit down, um, didn't really talk about it until after sobriety, but um, I ended up being homeless. I was homeless in the city of DC in the middle of winter. It sucked balls. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. <laughs> like for real. By the way, my apologies about my language. <laughs> I forgot to mention that in advance. <laughs> so anywho, um, I was in the, it was in DC, middle of winter, and I just had the determination to find a job. So I found a job as a server and my coworker was like, I got a room for rent. And of course I go there. And that's when a lot of other drugs got in the mix. Let's just say I was called bitch on the couch um, because I'd find myself passed out. And every time I heard the nitrous tank go off, I'd be like, balloon. And like, I'd wake up out of my seat and they're like, oh yeah, she's the bitch on the couch. She got problems. But anywho, 
Um, so I did a whole bunch of stuff in one night, and that's when I found the revelation. I thought I found my higher power of understanding. And so from there, I just did as much as I could, constantly blacking out. Um, that's when the blackout started to come on a regular basis, and I thought it was okay. That's, that's what I wanted to feel, is that blackout every single time. And so I found myself at the end of the road because, once again, I got kicked out of another household. And I called mommy and daddy, and I was just like, can, can we try this one more time, you know? And they're like, sure, come on down. And I come to Texas for my first time. And it's not like I thought it was. I thought it was just a place full of sticks and uh, sand. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I moved to McAllen, Texas. If anybody's been next to the border of Texas, I can just tell you right now, you probably know I got into some trouble. Like, living on the border of Mexico is just... It was blackout after blackout after blackout, and then I found myself going back to my original behavior of being the bad girl, and I attempted to start my own drug trade, um, and I started to cross things over the border, and um, luckily I didn't get in trouble, but my friend did, and she is currently in Mexico, um, arrested, um, Finally, they released her, but the fact is, that's what happened when you hung around me, is I would get you in trouble to the point where you get deported. Um, and so, I felt I needed to have all my problems solved, and the best way to do that was join the military. And so, um, I joined the Texas Army National Guard. Um, I was grateful I passed my drug test, um, and the reason why I was grateful I passed my drug test is because I actually found AA through the military, and if it wasn't for that, like, I don't know if I'd be alive today, honestly. I have no idea, because I was getting fucked up every single day and night, and one of my friends, the way she put it is like, you're going nowhere fast. And she had no idea if I'd be alive the next day. I was just constantly like putting myself in situations that could get me killed, arrested, or just straight up in the hospital, you know? Um, I'm sure some of you could relate, um, but anywho. So I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was in a rehab through the military at Fort Gordon, Georgia. And um, basically all I did was cross the T's and dot the I's. That's all I did. And as soon as you let me out, I basically was like, I found me a girl that I met online. I got me some drugs and I got me some liquor. Let's go to South Padre Island. Um, and so I did that as soon as I got out of rehab. And I was literally off to the races. 
And um, I went back to doing illegal activity once again. And this time, what was going to save me is becoming a truck driver. And I was still in the military. And I'm trying to manage this lifestyle. Like, now I'm in the military. Now I'm a truck driver. And I'm constantly moving cross country, like, nonstop, doing drugs and alcohol. Um, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. This is the type of life that I put myself through. And um, it finally came to the point where I ended up in the hospital. And I don't remember the day, but I remember that I was at a bar and I was attempting to drink a 300 pound man under the table. I don't know how you do that, but um, that's the stuff that I think that's cool to do. Um, and I definitely lost because I ended up blacked out in some random person's house. And um, a guy was attempting to rape me. And luckily it was interrupted by my friend um, who was 300 pounds. He ended up smashing that guy and he tried to drag me out of the situation. But I was way too heavy, he said. And luckily the... Um, Paramedics came and they took me to the hospital and I woke up with an endotracheal tube stuck down my throat trying to fight them off. Um, it was just a really bad situation. And so when the doctors told me I needed to stay there, I was like saying to myself, I can't stay here. I've got drill. And what drill is, I got to report to the military. At least that's what I thought, the delusion that I needed to report to the military. Um, and so I discharged myself against medical advice. And so I was driving all the way from Missouri in my vehicle, trying to get to Texas. And I ended up in another hospital. I believe it was Oklahoma with, um, what was it? I can't recall right now. But it was a disease where you, where if you don't get it treated, you can die. And um, they said, luckily, you came in because if you hadn't, you would have definitely passed out and who knows what would have happened. And so um, the nurse told me, like, why don't you ask for help? And all I could do was cry because I was so defeated and I didn't know how to ask for help. And um, finally, I broke down and I called my sister and my mom and I told her where I was at. And I didn't tell her the drinking part about how I blacked out and ended up in the hospital, but I told her that um, I was in the hospital for that disease. And um, they were really supportive. And if I had probably told them what had really happened, I'm sure they would have been supportive still. Though the delusion in my head at that time was, I'm gonna be judged, I'm gonna be mistreated, and no one's gonna really accept me anymore. Um, and so after I got discharged from the hospital, <coughs> I finally made it to Texas, and the doctor told me, 
if anything, don't drink for two weeks. And this is the coming two point because I couldn't even do that. I couldn't even not drink for two weeks. And so I ended up drinking, coughing up blood. Like I called my first sponsor back at that first rehab I went to. Her name's Eileen. And, um, and I'm just crying over the phone like, what do I do? And she's like, girl, get to a meeting. <laughs> like, how hard is that? And I'm like, who would have thought? <laughs> but my, my, my thought life was so small that all I knew how to do was thankfully pick up the fucking phone. You know, that a thousand pound phone. And so the next day I went to a meeting. And from there, that's how I started my sobriety date of 5, 14, 16. And um, what it looked like was not pretty. It wasn't pretty. And it talks about in the book, like, we're going to have these thoughts, these inspirational thoughts, but not always are they going to be valid. <laughs> and so what happened was, I needed to really drop everything and just focus on my sobriety. That's what I felt I needed. And thank God I did. Um, and I also thought I couldn't get sober in Texas. So I moved to uh, El Dorado, Arkansas. Um, and if any of y'all know El Dorado, Arkansas, it's called the Thunder Zone because they make a lot of methamphetamines out there. And that's actually my drug of, to drug of choice. Um, so... My higher power literally did for me what I could not do for myself. Um, so I was in El Dorado, Arkansas, and I met, I had met this couple back in Texas and they allowed me to stay with them. And um, they just asked me to have a willingness, honesty, and an open mind. That's all they asked of me. And I was just really floored by that. And I didn't understand that that was describing a spiritual experience, that they were there to help guide me to have this spiritual experience. And so they suggested that I go to meetings every day. They also suggested that I go to an IOP facility because um, it does talk about in the book when and I'm not quoting this directly, I'm just summarizing it, but when we are wet drunks, like, it's suggesting that we get into a type of facility that will help us stay sober, for example, an inpatient, outpatient, IOP, PHP, whatever it may be, um, and that's what I did, um, and that ex was extremely helpful, and so fast-forwarding, I was still in the military at the time, and so I needed to come back to Texas, obviously. And um, luckily, I never was discharged from the military. I actually was able to finish out this past year um, successfully, honorably discharged. And so I moved back to Texas, and they told me to go to many meetings, get many numbers, and get a sponsor and do that immediately. And that's what I did. And I went to so many meetings here in Austin. By the way, Austin has such a wonderful like community of AA.
it's ridiculous. I went all the way from like <clears throat> freaking Cedar Park, which I consider Austin, the the Hope group up there, all the way to Cherry Creek. Even the Buda Big Book group. Oh my gosh, I love that meeting. It's so amazing. If y'all ever stop through Buda, like the Buda Big Book group is phenomenal, especially on Sunday. Um, <clears throat> but anywho, so I went to a million meetings and I actually would hear what they would say. <clears throat> and I wasn't even 90 days sober yet. And I thought I was going to do this deal just for like 90 days. And then I sat in the rooms and I would hear and I heard someone say like, this is not just doing 90 and 90. It's a every day, all day thing. And it talks about it in the book. And I'm going to flip through that page real quick. The spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. Unless one's family expresses a desire to live upon spiritual principles, we think we ought not to argue with them. We should not talk incessantly to them about spiritual matters. They will change in time. Our behavior will convince them more than our words. We must remember that 10 or 20 years of drunkenness would make a skeptic out of anyone. And what that means to me is like, I've got to live this way of life every single day. Or excuse me, I get to live this way of life every single day. And as I live this way of life, I get to have this beautiful connection with people. And what it looks like today is like, for example, I was with a friend of mine before I got here. And I got to meet her grandparents. I had met them before, but I got to spend time with them again. Someone who was constantly drinking and drugging and putting themselves in situations that were like life-threatening. This same person, like who knows this about my past, is allowing me into her family. And as a way of me living a spiritual life, day in, day out, I get to create strong relationships in sobriety. And people like actually care about me and I get to care about them back. And so, Going back to where I was, um, actually, I forgot where I was. <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay. Um, my higher power is speaking through me, not me. Um, so, oh, yeah. So it's an everyday matter. And so once that really sunk in, I think that's when the work started happening. And it talks about... Third step prayer. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me as to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me the bondages of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear, bear witness to those I would help of thy love, thy power. Excuse me, thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. We thought well before taking this step, making sure we were ready that we could help could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. And before I had really 
known that this is a way of life every day, day in, day out, that really didn't sink in for me. And um, it says more, we found it very desirable to take this spiritual step with an understanding person such as a wife, best friend, or a spiritual advisor. But this, but it is better to meet God alone than with one who might misunderstand. And so finally, once I was able to get the understanding of allowing my higher power to turn me into sanity, and then um, going to step three, I started itty bitty steps while I had all that trauma in me throughout my childhood and growing up I actually thought about the first time I was just truly happy truly at peace just truly innocent and through prayer meditation and this is just my experience through prayer meditation, I was able to tap into my inner child, that most innocent self where I could just start with. And I would actually like to do this with y'all. So I would close my eyes, take a deep breath. <clears throat> And I would find the safe space. I found myself seeing this closet and opening up. And I was there in a forest. It was so peaceful. The light was bright. The sun was just gleaming on my body. I could smell the trees. And from afar, I could hear a stream. And I walk closer to the noise of the stream. And I sat at the stream and I would make these little mud balls. Each mud ball finding, excuse me, representing just all my self-pity, my worry, my fears, everything that was holding me back everything that was holding my body down. I would make these little mud balls and I would just pluck them in the water, one by one. Taking a huge deep breath. And then I would walk away from the stream lighter and I'd see myself my other self, my present self, with my inner child. And I do that meditation on a daily basis. Thank you. So I do that meditation on a daily basis. And from there it just formed. And my fourth step, the very first time I had done it, I did it on a poster board because I was extra. No one, don't ever do it on a poster board. I can tell you it's just unnecessary work. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's just so unnecessary. But I had a huge ego. And I heard, in the, I heard the other day that having a huge ego is edging God out. So anywho, 
<laughs> I was definitely edging God out with my four step the first time. But um, I was able to actually see life for the first time. I was able to actually look someone in the eyes and pay attention to them instead of what I always had to say. And it was a beautiful connection I got to make. It was a genuine connection. And that really took me far. And even though it was just like literally writing down inventory, the work happened for me when I was able to share it with someone. And they didn't judge me for who I was. They didn't tell me like they were disgusted with me. They didn't say like, you're just like this schmuck, like yeah. you're a piece of shit. They didn't say any of that. They just accepted me for who I was. And that was just remarkable. And it wasn't just my sponsor who did that, it was everyone in these rooms. And so I was able to start creating this fellowship with not just myself that was in my head because that's all I knew, this committee in my head constantly. And I was able to start building relationships inside of the fellowship and my higher power became y'all for a little bit. But it formed from that. It developed from that. The love in these rooms was great, though I needed a bigger higher power. I needed a higher power that was going to love my deepest, darkest <clears throat> secrets that I was so fearful of telling anybody that I was so fearful even telling myself. And I'm going to say, like, thank you for the person to the left of me for wearing the shirt. It says fear is a liar because it's so true. Um, I actually was finally able to face an inventory that I had never told anyone. And I'm actually sharing it for the first time out loud. Um, as a kid, my sex trauma was having taken advantage of my sister and brother. And when I like finally came to terms with that, I just was so disgusted with myself. I was disgusting, it was disgusting, and I needed to die. And so that put me through a lot of like mental illness, depression, like, and I don't, I deal with it today. And it actually says it in the book where for step eight, there may be some wrongs we can never fully right. We don't worry about them if we can honestly say to ourselves that we would write them if we could. Some people cannot be seen. We send them an honest letter, and there may be a valid reason for postponement in some cases, but we don't delay if it can be avoided. We should be sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping. As God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't crawl before anyone. And um, the beautiful thing about amends is God is doing for me what I could not do for myself. And even though it's a wonderful one-liner is so true and it showed up to me in my life by when I made my amends I called my sister on the phone because she's in a whole nother state and I brought it up 
And I said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for <clears throat> having done that. And the point of making amends to me is sharing like, yes, I did do that horrible thing, but I'm now, I'm no longer going to do that anymore. That's not the person I want to be today. And so the beautiful thing about it is she had already forgiven me. And I hadn't realized it because I was so caught up in my delusion. And when I went to go make, when I wanted to make amends to my brother, that one took me really hard to time to do. And God showed up in my life because my brother, by the way, my siblings are younger than me. My sister's five years younger than me and my brother's seven years younger than me. So these are young kids like approaching me my brother, seven years younger than me, approaching me and saying, Kari, I wanna let you know that I have forgiven you about this already. And I hadn't even approached him about it. And that's beautiful. Something that I just wanted to die over. He approached me about it and was saying like, you could be free of this. Now the thing about that guys and women, is for me, it takes me so much more to forgive myself. And that's what I'm doing today. I'm learning to forgive myself. And I want to add in here, I know we're getting close to the end, but I really want to add in here, um, back in um, 2018, I ended up in a psych ward for my first time. And I just ended up in this deep depression. I was sober and I couldn't explain it. Couldn't explain it. I'd been working the steps. I had service commitments. I was part of this community where people knew who I was. I knew who they were. And while I had did all these things, like I ended up in a psych ward. And I really do believe part of that is I had carried a lot of my trauma throughout my childhood into my sobriety and I wouldn't let it go. I just wouldn't let it go. And it really pulled me down for the longest. While I do a lot of outside issues, which I can definitely talk to you about it outside of here, but I do um, really do believe that if I had let go of that trauma, I don't think I would have actually ended up in a psych ward. I would say today, like, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just something I would highly suggest, like, my secrets will kill me. And I didn't really realize how deadly my secrets are. But, you know, coming back from that psych experience, I'm still grateful for it because being dual diagnosis, I'm able to relate with people who have those same issues. And I find it really important to talk about in these rooms 
open closed meetings i apologize but it's just part of my experience and there's more people in these rooms who are dual diag than even if not diagnosed we've all got something going on we've all put ourselves through a situation where it was traumatic or just really depriving ourselves of just a happy, joyous, and free life. And I feel like that's what I did when I put alcohol and drugs in my body. I was constantly depriving myself of a happy, joyous, and free life. And so today, while I may not putting, be putting drugs and alcohol in my body, I was putting myself emotionally through those situations of just punishing myself, and I choose not to do that anymore. So moving on, step 12. Um, I do have many service commitments, but for me, step 12 isn't really just about having <coughs> service commitments. It's about sitting down with someone else, knee to knee, working through these steps. And I've heard a lot of people in these rooms and outside of these rooms talk about, oh my gosh, like having a sponsor is so amazing. My sponsor is the best. And I tell my sponsees that all I am is just a vessel for you to get connected with your higher power of understanding. I'm not your higher power. I'm just a vessel so you could get connected and hopefully like my higher power will talk to your higher power they can shake hands and you can like end up with this wonderful spiritual experience, but I don't have anything to do with it. That's all you and your higher power of understanding. Like I have nothing to do with it. And so what it looks like today with that being all being said, um, this is like always the hardest part for me. <laughs> What it looks like today is I have a beautiful life. I really do. And what makes it beautiful is I get to wake up every single day. I don't have to put something in my body and make me feel okay. And when I do have those moments of depression or anxiety or just trauma popping up, I actually reach out to my therapist, my sponsor, my psychiatrist, trusted friends in the program. I don't just shove that shit down. I don't have to today. And so on top of all that, my higher power doesn't really look like anything. It's really all about like time slowing down for me. And my favorite moment was driving the car, taking deep breaths, smelling the breeze, hearing the birds chirp, just being the moment, being the present. If that happens once a day, I'm like, I'm set.
It's the most bliss experience, just being the present. And I said a lot. I don't know about y'all, but I felt like I said some heavy shit. <laughs> so if y'all wouldn't mind taking three deep breaths with me, I'd greatly appreciate it. So get comfortable in your chair. Inhale. Hold it for a moment. Exhale. Inhale from the bottom of your toes. Hold it. Exhale, let it all go. One more time. Thank you.